Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When I mention World War I, what images come to mind? Mud, trenches, huge artillery explosions, lines of men going forward, only to be mowed down by machine gun fire. Maybe you've expanded your vision a bit to include desert sands, Gaza and the Camel Corps. But how about gale force winds, icebergs and sheer mind-numbing monotony? Probably not, eh? But for a few thousand of Australia's World War I servicemen, this was part of their war. An endless round of escort and blockade with the ever-present threat of a torpedo from underneath. I am, of course, referring to those clean-cut young men from the Royal Australian Navy. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone, welcome back. I know I take the mickey out of the Air Force and the Navy quite a bit and for anyone who's ever been in the services, you all know it's good natured fun and just a bit of ribbing between services which is all good. But in the last month or so, the personnel of the Royal Australian Air Force, the RAAF, have been performing some amazing work over in Kabul. I think we've all seen the footage and know what was going on over there. And I'd just like to take this opportunity to say to those personnel, you've done a fantastic job, you've done your service and your country proud, and I can only imagine some of the things you guys have, have seen over the last few weeks, and uh, we thank you for your efforts. And for the families of those who were involved, I can only imagine there's been a lot of sleepless nights, uh, eyes glued to every news report just to see what's going on. And the fact that our servicemen and women are able to do what they do is largely in part due to the support they get on the home front. So thank you to them as well. And just briefly, to anyone who has served in the Afghan war, I understand that a lot of the events of the last few weeks and months uh, are going to be very hard for a lot of people to take. But if you are one of those veterans, just remember, any failings of that campaign are purely political and are, are not a reflection on the efforts you men and women put in Again, like the RAAF, you guys have done your country proud and we thank you for your efforts over the last 20 years. So, back to normal programming. The role the Royal Australian Navy played in the Great War is often unsung. Unlike World War II, apart from a couple of exceptions, there were no real pivotal war-defining battles such as Coral Sea or the Tobruk Ferry Service. They primarily escorted troop ships from Australia to the various fronts and escorted those ships bringing wounded men back home or else they patrolled the waters of the North Sea as part of Britain's blockade of the German High Seas Fleet. Hardly the stuff for stirring patriotic fervour and the telling of exciting tales. But it was vital work under sometimes extreme conditions and probably deserves more praise than they've received over the last hundred years. So to tip the balance a little and to give credit where credit is due, I'll go through the various actions, both the exciting and the mundane, and see what those lads got up to. I initially thought it would probably only take one episode to tell this story, it will end up taking about three. In the first episode, we'll cover the early operations over the first few months, ending up with Sydney's encounter with the Emden. The second episode will cover the REN role at Gallipoli, which contained a couple of surprises, and the adventures of HMAS Psyche. And then in the third episode, we'll head to Europe and Africa for the war against Germany. But before all of that, 
What was the state of the Navy at the outbreak of the war? Well, for a large country completely surrounded by water and dependent upon that water for trade and security, the state of the Navy can best be described as underwhelming. Right up until the early 1900s, we pretty much relied on the good old Royal Navy for our protection. A few insightful people reckoned that this wasn't a great situation. One such person was Captain William Cresswell, then Director of the Commonwealth Naval Forces. They demanded a standalone Australian Navy financed and directed by Australia in Australia's interests. In 1907, Creswell and Prime Minister Alfred Deakin attended the Imperial Conference in London where they put the proposal of an Australian Navy to the British Admiralty. The Poms weren't impressed. They didn't want ships being under control of anyone but the Admiralty. Fancy Australia wanting a say in their own maritime defence. Good Lord, the impertinence of such a suggestion. So anyway, Creswell and Deakin returned to Australia without the British backing. But in what must have been quite the difficult decision, keeping in mind Australians still saw themselves as British, Deakin, in 1908, invited the United States' Great White Fleet to visit Australia. This served two purposes. First, it fostered an enthusiasm for a modern navy among the Australian public. The sight of these fine, imposing American ships got many Australians thinking, why don't we have some of those? This attitude then made it easier for Deakin to authorise the purchase of two 700-tonne river-class torpedo boat destroyers from the US. And so the deal was done. The Pommy Admiralty were quite appalled by this, but it showed a willingness for Australia to look elsewhere if the English wouldn't play nicely. Maybe it wouldn't be such a bad thing to allow those colonials to have their own navy, so long as they purchased them from the fine British shipyards, not the Yanks. And so they changed their position, and in 1910 the Naval Defence Act was passed and the Australian Navy came into being. The first two destroyers of the Navy, the HMS Parramatta and the HMS Yarra, were launched in Scotland in February and April 1910 respectively. They were commissioned into the Royal Navy and sailed to Australia, arriving on the 10th of December 1910. On 10th of July 1911, King George V granted the royal title to the Navy, which then became known as the Royal Australian Navy. And all the ships within that Navy would carry the prefix His Majesty's Australian Ship, or HMAS. Fortunately, the H part of the prefix didn't have to change when Elizabeth took the throne, but they are currently known as Her Majesty's Australian Ship. I won't give my thoughts on a foreign monarch having technical ownership of our vessels, but you could probably guess. Anywho, a couple of destroyers were not going to cut it when it comes to the defence of our 34,000 kilometre coastline. Circa 1911, the Japanese Navy was growing in strength. In the early 1900s, they'd given the Russian Navy a belting during the Russo-Japanese War. Australia was nervous, and so in the 1911 Imperial Conference, it was agreed that the Royal Navy would work with the RAN to provide a blue water defence capacity. The British Admiralty had maintained what had been known as the Australia Station until 1913, when they passed responsibility and nominal command of the situation to the Royal Australian Navy, along with all the depots and dockyards and other naval structures. The first commander of the RAN was Admiral George Patey. He was on loan from the Royal Navy, so not an Australian commander, but such was the way of things back then. By the end of 1913, the Navy had grown to now include the Battlecruiser Australia, the cruisers Melbourne and Sydney, the protected cruiser Encounter and the torpedo boat destroyers Parramatta, Yarra and Warrego. These ships were manned by 400 officers and men. At the outbreak of hostilities in August 1914, the small cruiser HMAS Pioneer and the submarines HMAS AE-1 and AE-2 had been added to the complement. The Navy also had some obsolete gunboats and torpedo boats left over from the colonial days. There was a rather uncomfortable reality which required immediate remediation at the outbreak of war. 
The Germans had stations pretty much on our doorstep in German New Guinea and New Britain. From these locations, German raiders were now slipping out into the Pacific and Indian Oceans, intent on causing as much disruption to Allied shipping as possible. And this obviously included any future troop transports that may be leaving Australia in the coming months. So while the troops, who would eventually fill out those troop ships, rushed to recruiting depots and underwent their initial training, the Navy was already preparing for its first offensive operation. The strategic locations of the German possessions enabled Vice Admiral van Spee to control his Asiatic squadron via wireless networks and other facilities. The armoured cruisers Scharnhorst and Gnesnau and the light cruisers Emden, Nuremberg and Leipzig could be moved around like chess pieces to gather intelligence and strike if a suitable target presented itself. To try and neutralise this threat, the first coalition operation involved the Australia and Melbourne in company with the Royal Navy's Psyche, Philomel Pyramus and the French cruiser Montcalm and they escorted a force of 1,400 new troops to German Samoa. Seeing all this military might heading their way, the colony surrendered without a fight. Melbourne then went to the German-held island of Nauru, with orders to destroy the wireless station there. 25 of Melbourne's crew landed on the 9th of September, rocked up to the German administrator, and arrested him. The administrator had saved them the effort of destroying the wireless, as it had already taken care of that before they arrived. It was all quite easy, but that was about to change. Samoa and Nauru were nice stations to capture, but the important ones were all around New Guinea, particularly at Rabaul on the island of New Britain. If you'd like to pause this episode now and go and check out a map of the General Pacific region, you'll see why Rabaul was so important. Off you go, I'll wait. <whistles> Done? Okay, so you'll note New Britain is a fairly large island off the east coast of New Guinea. From here, German vessels could sortie out in all directions, maybe even take a sneaky run down the east coast of Australia if they so desired. It obviously had to be taken. But just as obviously, the Germans would want to keep it for themselves. To undertake this operation, an all-volunteer force was raised, known as the Australian Naval and Military Expeditionary Force, or ANMEF for short. From here on, I'll just call it the force. It consisted of 500 naval reservists, an old Royal Navy seaman and a battalion of 1,000 infantry. It was raised fairly hastily, and just over one month after the declaration of war, the force sailed. The exact whereabouts of Spee's squadron was unknown at the time, so the force was accompanied by the strong naval escort consisting of Australia, Sydney and Counter, Parramatta, Yarra, AE-1 and AE-2, a storeship, three colliers and a transport. So basically most of the RAN. Intelligence reports suggested there were two wireless stations in the vicinity, one at Bitapaka and the other at Herbeshaw, just inland from Rabaul. Two parties of naval reservists were formed to capture each station. On 11th September 1914, under the command of Lieutenant Bowen of the RAN, 25 sailors landed and headed inland to take Bitapaka. Rather than head straight up the main road and being visible to any potential defenders lying in wait, a scouting party went through the scrub and somehow found themselves behind the German first line of defence. Not wanting to waste the advantage, they opened fire and wounded the German commander, who then ordered his native troops to surrender. With the commander as their captive, the scouting party ordered him to lead their march towards the next German outpost. He was ordered to tell his comrades that 800 troops had been landed and were making their way to this position. A message was sent to the defence commander, who thought, as he was so heavily outnumbered, there was no point in resisting, and so he ordered his troops to surrender. Which goes to show that bluff and brains are sometimes much better option than attempting to take a position by force. With Bitterpacker's four defences now neutralised, it was only the garrison of Bitterpacker that could put up a resistance. 
Bowen pushed on quickly and soon came across a series of enemy trenches and snipers firing from hidden positions up in the trees. It was during this phase of the operations that Australia suffered the first of what would become 60,000 fatalities during the war. Able seaman Billy Williams was a naval reservist, only days away from completing his five-year service requirement when war broke out. He was called up for active duty and landed with the first group to go ashore. During the fighting at Bitterpaka, he was seriously wounded and taken back to the coast to be loaded onto a ship for medical treatment, but he died soon after. The second fatality came very shortly after that one. Captain Pockley was a medical officer who went ashore with a raiding party. When Billy Williams was wounded, Pockley handed his Red Cross armband to another man so he could carry Williams to safety without being shot at. Pockley was assisting a German sergeant major who had been shot through the hand. The German told him to take cover or to put up a Red Cross flag, but Pockley didn't have a flag and refused to leave the wounded man. He was in the process of amputating the hand when he was shot and killed. At around 10am, a group of reinforcements arrived with Lieutenant Hill of the Yarra, adding a further 59 men to the Australian side. After a quick consultation, Bowen and Hill began a flanking movement, but Bowen was wounded as the advance began, with command now falling to Hill. The attack stalled until more reinforcements arrived under Lieutenant Commander Elwell of the Royal Navy, who took command and got things moving again. He sent Hill to take charge of a flanking movement around the left, while he himself took another force around to the right. While leading a bayonet charge on the right, Elwell was killed, and once again, Hill was left in command. Hill pushed on, but it wasn't until a small band of reinforcements arrived under Lieutenant Gillam that things began to move forward again. The numbers by that stage were now well and truly with the Allies, and the defenders reluctantly agreed to unconditional surrender. Not all got the message though, and when Lieutenant Bond was ordered to advance and secure the wireless station, several small skirmishes broke out, leading to further casualties. Bond rushed forward and disarmed eight Germans in the presence of 20 German native troops. Later, he personally captured five armed natives. For these actions, he was awarded the Distinguished Service Order, the first Australian to be decorated during the war. The next day, Herbert Shaw and Rabaul were taken without a fight when the German forces surrendered. Over the next few weeks, most of the German territories, most significantly those on Bougainville and the Admiralty Islands, were seized with very little resistance. All up, the German wireless network had been disabled for the cost of six dead and four wounded. But these numbers don't take into account those lost in the RAN's first operational disaster. The submarine AE-1, along with her sister vessel AE-2, was involved in these operations. After the capture of Rabaul, AE-1 departed Blanche Bay at 7am on 14th September to patrol off Cape Gazelle in company with HMAS Parramatta. By the end of the day, the Parramatta had returned from the patrol, but there was no sign of AE-1. A search party was sent out, but were unable to find any trace of her. She was officially listed as lost with all hands. 35 crew members were lost. It wasn't until 2017 that the location of the wreck was discovered. In September 2018, a research team from the National Maritime Museum concluded that a ventilation valve had been left open, probably to make conditions inside the sub a bit more comfortable in the tropics. When the vessel dived, water flooded into the engine room via this valve and all control was lost. AE-1 sank below 100 metres where the pressure caused it to implode, killing everyone instantly. Despite the fact they had taken control of the wireless stations, the sea lanes were not safe for the Allies. The ships which those stations had controlled were still out there somewhere. Speed Squadron was known to be somewhere in the Pacific, which is about as much use as saying I live somewhere in Australia. On the other side, in the Indian Ocean, the raiders Konigsberg and Emden were still floating around. Spee's fleet was a concern, but it was these two raiders that were the big problem. 
Any troop transport making its way from Australia to Europe would have to run the gauntlet of the Indian Ocean, a juicy target for a couple of quick, well-armed vessels. On 30 September, Speed's cruisers had raided Tahiti. This put them well to the east of Australia and New Zealand, which meant those troops waiting to embark from the eastern states and New Zealand could now get underway to the designated assembly point in Albany, Western Australia. The RAN at this stage were dealing with German merchant shipping in the Bismarck Archipelago, the series of islands including New Britain and New Ireland. These actions ensured any German garrisons left were effectively starved of supplies, but in the larger picture of the war, it wasn't exactly making a huge impact. It was the Indian Ocean where the action was, or was at least, likely to be. The troops of the 1st AIF were sitting around off Albany, waiting to get into the war, but to send the convoy on its way without an escort would have been disastrous. The HMAS Melbourne and Sydney were dispatched from the east to the Indian Ocean to form part of the escort of the convoy, along with HMS Minotaur. And finally, the Japanese battlecruiser Ibuki lent its potential firepower to the convoy as well. It's funny, isn't it? In 1914, a Japanese warship was protecting Australian troops. 28 years later, Japanese warships were attacking Australians. Once again, I wonder how human beings survived evolution. So these four ships would be responsible for the safe passage of 38 Australian and 10 New Zealand transport ships, 21,500 Australians, including 25 nurses, 8,500 New Zealanders, 12,000 horses, and all the associated medical and military equipment required. Not to mention the hopes of all those families and friends left behind. Talk about a heavy burden. Although the Konigsberg was a threat, it was the Emden which was the main concern. Under the command of Captain Von Muller, in only six weeks, Emden had captured or sunk almost 100,000 tonnes of merchant shipping, destroyed oil tanks in Madras, and had also sunk the Russian light cruiser Zimpchung and the French torpedo destroyer Moskwe. Von Müller and his crew were certainly active. With the escort vessels all set to go, the first convoy of Australian troops to leave Australia pulled away from Albany on 1st of November 1914. Strict security measures were enforced, with no light to show during the hours of darkness, except for those essential for stopping the ships from running into each other. With a convoy of that size, they were necessarily spread out over a fair distance, and their four escorts were kept busy keeping a watch on all directions. If a fast-moving warship managed to get in among the transports, they could do a lot of damage. A fact of which everyone on those transports would have been well aware. So you can well imagine the concerns some of those people would have felt when, on 9th November, the Sydney was seen to raise smoke and shoot through at a great rate of knots. Rumours would have swirled around the convoy as to exactly what this meant. What it actually did mean was the Sydney was heading off to locate and join battle with Emden. Captain Von Mueller was actually unaware that the convoy had left Albany, but he had intercepted some wireless messages which indicated that the search for his ship was zeroing in. His best course of action, as far as he saw it, was to disrupt the radio network which was being used against him. He decided the British wireless station on the Cocos Islands was his best bet. Not only would it disrupt communications, but it would draw British shipping to that area, by which stage he planned to be long gone in attacking merchant shipping near India. Von Müller actually cut across the convoy about 40 miles to its front during the night of the 8th of November while heading to the wireless station. He arrived off Direction Island in the wee small hours, poorly disguised as a British cruiser. The station superintendent wasn't stupid enough to fall for the ruse and quickly sent an SOS before Emden jammed the transmission. The Germans landed and got to work destroying the station by smashing the wireless equipment, cutting telegraph cables and blowing up the wireless mast. Unfortunately for them, the SOS message had been received by HMAS Melbourne. 
The Melbourne was the lead vessel of the convoy and so wasn't able to depart and investigate. So Sydney, under the command of Captain John Glossop, was ordered to go and have a look. Around 9.30 in the morning of the 9th, Sydney and Emden engaged. Sydney had all the advantages. Her gun range was superior to Emden and she was faster as well, despite being heavier. But despite the advantages, Sydney was the one to receive the first shock of the day. Like most British naval commanders, Glossop underestimated the range of the Germans' 4.1-inch 105mm guns. Von Miller's tactics was to try and get in quickly and inflict as much damage as possible. Maybe a couple of lucky shots might take out Glossop's bridge, or cause damage to the engine or to the turrets. A disabled Sydney would be easier to escape from. Thinking that Sydney was beyond Von Miller's range, Glossop wasn't too concerned, but the Endem opened up unexpectedly and with accuracy. Her first barrage damaged the Sydney's control platform and rangefinder in the upper bridge. The Sydney had four sailors killed and a dozen wounded from this barrage, but these were to be her only casualties of the engagement. This woke Glossop up to the actual range of the German guns, and so he used his superior speed to move back out of range, while returning fire at ever-lengthening range. Von Mueller's gamble hadn't paid off, and his ship was subjected to accurate fire from Sydney. Endem continued to return fire, but as she took more and more punishment, one by one her guns stopped firing. By 11am, only one was still in action. Her fire control positions, forward funnel and foremast were all shot away, and she was basically on fire from bow to stern. Von Mueller accepted the Emden was lost, and now he turned his efforts towards saving what crew he had left. He turned for North Keeling Island and beached the ship. Seeing Emden on the ground, Glossop turned his attention to the collier Buresque, which had been servicing Emden. But, seeing the writing on the wall, the queue of Buresque scuttled the ship before she could be seized. Glossop then returned to Emden, and at around 4pm, and to his surprise, she was still flying the German ensign, which according to the rules of maritime warfare, meant she was still in the fight. This left Glossop in a tight spot. Obviously she was destroyed, but last Glossop knew, Endem still had that one gun in action. Von Müller had shown himself to be a tenacious and brave opponent. Was he maybe luring Glossop in to give him one more volley before being blown to pieces? Or had he just forgotten to lower his flag amidst everything else he was dealing with? Glossop tried to signal Von Müller, but no response was received. Was his radio destroyed? Possibly. Was he playing dead to lure the Sydney closer? Also possibly. In the end, Glossop was left with little choice but to reluctantly put another two salvos into Emden. The flag was very promptly lowered and the engagement officially came to an end. But Sydney still needed to check on the situation on Direction Island, the location of the wireless station. It wasn't until the following day that the crew of Sydney could come and render assistance to what was left of the Emden's crew. She had gone into the engagement with a complement of 316. Of those, 134 were killed and 65 wounded. The scene on board Emden shocked many of the Sydney's crew. It was the first time they'd come face to face with the realities of naval conflict. As they searched the ship for dead and wounded sailors, they could only imagine the horror that those men had endured. It cooled the enthusiasm for war which most of them had carried up to that point. They developed a certain admiration for their erstwhile enemy. Although obviously outgunned, they came into the fight anyway and continued to fight long past when they should have quit. When they had taken the survivors onto Sydney, the Emden's officers were allowed to keep their swords and the general sailors were treated with respect. After a few days eating the same mess, the officers from both ships reached the conclusion that although it was their job to knock one another out, there was no malice in it. As a further mark of respect for the defeated enemy, as the Sydney sailed into Colombo, Glossop radiated ahead, requesting that the other ships not cheer and celebrate, 
although it doesn't appear as though everybody got the message. Banjo Patterson, accompanying the troops as a war correspondent, reported, quote, Arrived in Colombo to find everybody in a wild state of excitement. We can hardly believe that Australia's first major engagement could have been such a sensational win. For our people are not seagoing people, and our Navy, which some of us used to call a panicking Navy, was never taken very seriously. And now we have actually sunk a German ship. End quote. So that basically took care of the threat in the Indian Ocean. But the Pacific was still dangerous. There was no significant Australian involvement in the hunt for Von Spee, but as part of the hunt, HMAS Australia was ordered to the American coast. Rendezvousing on 29th of November with the Japanese cruisers Asama, Izumo and Heisen. Von Spee decided to raid the British coaling station at Port Stanley in the Falkland Islands. He didn't realise that a British fleet, under Commander Sturdy, was already there and upon seeing Von Spee's ships heading his way, Sturdy went out to meet them. Before long, Scharnhorst, Gnesnau, Leipzig, Nuremberg and the colliers Baden and Santa Isabel were sunk by HMS Invincible and HMS Inflexible. This put an end to the threat in the Pacific, and so it meant that troop ships from Australia could now sail to Europe and the Middle East with only a light escort. So, now we've got to the end of 1914, but I reckon that's a pretty good spot to end this episode. So next time we take up the story, we'll cover the RAN role at Gallipoli, and then in the following episode we'll move on to the European theatre and the Mediterranean. We'll see you then. If you enjoyed that episode, if so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.